Welcome to Apocryphal Australia, where we present stories about Australia's past that highlight the obscure, the unsubstantiated and or the fanciful. These are tales of people, places and events that have been hitherto overlooked. So we're going to research them until the cows come home and then we'll present them to you. It's a job that needs doing and we're the ones to do it. My name's Michael Pryor. And I'm Stephen Higgins. And welcome, everyone, to episode 10 of Apocryphal Australia. But before we dive into our findings for this ep, we've got a little bit of mailbag stuff to get out of the way first. Stephen, I'll hand over to you. OK, I'm happy to go first. Lots of mail, lots of emails. We had an email from a Miss Elaine Jasper who wanted to know if we had seen her cat, Mr Tibbles, and I think she's sort of barking up the wrong tree here or meowing up the wrong tree because that's not really our thing. So sorry, Elaine, can't really help you with that one. Mm. We had another email from Mr. Alan Quist who said he knew the man who was the first person to sing on Australian TV. So might have a a little bit more of a delve into that one. Possibilities. And finally, uh, an email from a Miss Jess Duplay who said she had found a cat with the name tag Mr Tibbles. So that's a happy outcome <laughs> after all, I guess. It's looking good. We just aim to serve in lots of ways. Now, hmm. Stephen, uh, I only have one item from the mailbag, and that's from WW Topshelf of The Digging, South Australia. And she says that we both should be nominated for the Apocryphal Australian of the Year Award. Oh, goodness. I'm not sure how that works but we're happy to be nominated for any awards up to and including knighthoods so go for your life ww top shelf yeah i think somebody else should should actually organize the awards or institute the awards yeah okay we'll leave that to you uh, in our vast listening audience and that is about all i've got except for one very special item we had an unusual event at apocryphal australia headquarters when somebody actually visited, mysterious person, a woman wearing dark hat, dark glasses, and a dark trench coat, dark gloves too, if I remember correctly. And she came to the office, knocked on the door, and presented us with a briefcase and said, I think you'll find this interesting, and left. Well, Stephen and I looked at each other, looked at the briefcase, and said, this is what we're in this business for. So, gentle folk out there, we have the briefcase, and we're about to open it for you live. Well, it's an ordinary enough looking black briefcase, so let me just... Yep, here I'm opening the briefcase, one clasp after another, and... I'm speechless. I, I can't. I, I don't know what to say. It's. I'm looking in, and well, if you could see, you'd see my face is bathed in this golden glow, I suppose. And I'm trying to see through this effulgence to describe, but no, no, no. Some things are better off left undescribed. 
can't say any more except to add that the briefcase has been taken out to the Apocryphal Australia headquarters secure area where Stephen and I will examine it for some time. Now, Stephen, I'm really excited about your first item. Tell us all about it. Yeah, and so you should be, Michael. Uh, He's an exciting young man. This is all about Johnny Guitar Drabs. He was born in 1946 and sadly died in 1988. He was born in England, a small town in England, and in a fit of nationalistic fervour, the people of England, the town, changed the name of the town to Dribble for some reason. And Johnny always liked to say that he came from Dribble and to Dribble he would return. This confused most of his fans when he came to prominence in Australia as a rock and rollin', shoutin' and a hollerin' singer-juggler. John arrived in the care of his aunt. He had to wait 10 years for his parents to join him in the new country, and by that time he was already established as a star. He toured the country shows and was promoted as Australia's answer to Keith Trent, no one knew who Keith Trent was, but they lapped up Johnny's enthusiastic stage show and singing style. Johnny was discovered in the outback town of Grinkston, where he was performing a tribute to Harry Goulton, who was not really very well known outside of the boundaries of Grinkston. And it was there that Johnny was spotted by Sergeant Barry Brince. Barry had left the army two years prior to his fortuitous meeting and was still avoiding the military police and charges of desertion when he stumbled in on Johnny's act. He quickly signed up Johnny and taught him to play the guitar. He then negotiated a recording deal, and the rest, as they say, is puzzling. Johnny went on to record a string of songs, popular old favourites, poignant love songs, hard-hitting protest songs, comedy songs. Johnny butchered them all. His rendition of Bill Dylan's Blowing in the Wind featuring the mass kazoos of the combined Victorian State Schools band, has to be heard to be believed. Barry Brintz knew that Johnny's ship would soon come in, however, and he pushed the young singer to breaking point. Johnny got involved with the wrong people and soon came to believe his own publicity. At the end of his career, he was huge, but not in a good show business kind of way, and broke. He became bloated on the riches of the Clinky Doo Bakery, where he worked for a few years. Cream buns, Nenish tarts, lamingtons, it was all the same to Johnny who just slotted any cake into his mouth and asked questions later. It became clear to his adoring fan that the end was nigh for Johnny. Barry tried to get him on the straight and narrow but failed. Johnny sacked him as a manager and hired Bruno Plinker, the owner of the bakery where Johnny did most of his later work. His last recordings were a travesty of his talent. Songs such as Black Magic Vanilla Slice, Honky Tonk Donut, and the haunting, if I said you had a beautiful pair of Nenish tarts, would you hold them against me, were all commercial failures. Bruce Plinker grew tired of the bloated, unsuccessful singer eating all the profits and fired Johnny. Two weeks later, Johnny was dead. His last will stipulated that his grave should be unmarked except for the words, here lies one whose name was writ in icing sugar. No one knows what that means. Now then, Michael, this Milo Hammond, he sounds like a very interesting chap. He is, because I'm, I'm looking at my research here and I've made a note to myself, not just Milo Hammond, Milo Hammond, architect, card sharp, 
visionary. And that, if that's not tantalising enough, I don't know what is. So Milo Hammond, uh, dates 1856 to 1910, he was born in the central Victorian town of Ararat to Donald and Agnes Hammond. Donald Hammond was a poor but virtuous itinerant chimney sweep, while Agnes was simply poor. Young Milo helped his father with the business of sweeping chimneys while his mother ran off with a succession of mendicants, merchant bankers, pastry cooks and engravers, but never for more than three days at a time. The results of this disrupted childhood were a footloose nature, an appreciation of good building techniques and a fear of enclosed spaces. For a time, Milo attempted to put himself through university by studying, as he called it, the practical application of probability theory via the medium of high-stakes card games. So successful was he at this that he entirely abandoned the academic life and pursued a life of cheating, manipulation and greed. Unluckily for Myla Hammond, there were no vacancies for politicians at this time. However, a major turning point in his life occurred in July 1881 when, in a clandestine card game, he won a half-completed building in the centre of Sydney. On visiting the property, he was seized with the possibilities of construction and, unhampered by any architectural theory at all, he proceeded to instruct builders in what was described somewhat bluntly as sheer lunacy. Soon after completion, the famous Shaking House became a landmark. Passers-by were constantly amazed at how such a construction could remain standing. Although unoccupied, the Shaking House defied the elements, and many who were simply offended by ugliness, for three years before finally succumbing to an unprecedented attack by a pack of rogue beavers that had been criminally set free in the neighbouring park in a misguided effort to introduce the large rodents into Australia. After the triumph of the Shaking House, Milo Hammond went on to create equal wonders across Australia. The Tilting Hotel, Sydney, 1883, the Uneven Theatre, Brisbane, 1887, the Unstable Officers, Brisbane, 1889, and, inevitably, the House of Cards, Hobart, 1892. Each was a spectacular construction, and each was an unmitigated failure as a practical dwelling or workplace. But Milo Hammond's charm and propensity for outright lying found commissions for him to exercise his unique vision. After a series of building collapses and financial shenanigans, though, eventually his reputation caught up with him and he was unable to find any work at all. This forced him to go back to relying on his ability at the card table to feed himself during the lean years of 1893 to 1903. That is, until a chance encounter in a seedy pharmacist's shop in Melbourne where he met the person who was to become his patron for the rest of his life, Walter Booth, the self-styled Count of Monte Carlo. It was Booth who was to provide the funds, the moral support and just the right touch of inspired madness that enabled Milo Hammond to complete his greatest work, The Tower Tower of Power. Power. The Tower of Power was Hammond's misguided attempt to build an edifice that would concentrate all the principles of architecture and construction that humanity had learned in one unique building. Instead, due to a combination of slapdash carpentry, erratic drafting techniques and a total lack of understanding of the practicality of the right angle, the Tower of Power became a monument of the bazaar. In its brief life, 12 days until a council inspector leaned on it, the Tower of Power was a culmination of Milo Hammond's professional vision. 
Unfortunately, both he and Walter Booth were buried in the collapse of the building, perishing immediately. Myla Hammond died penniless, leaving behind only a battered plumb bob and an interesting and possibly illegal set of playing cards. Hmm. So, Milo Hammond, building industry mover and shaker. I think that sums it up perfectly, Stephen. And we've got an interesting event coming up this time. Yes, we have. And this one is quite well known, the Melbourne Olympics of 1956, but it's a, a sort of a story behind the main story. This is 1956, and the whole of Melbourne is abuzz with three life-changing events. There is the drama and the wonder that is the Olympics and the introduction of television and a nasty B-play. Much has been written about the Melbourne Olympic Games of 1956. The B-plague was restricted to the outer suburbs and did not capture the media's attention. And the introduction of television heralded a new epoch, a whole new way in which Australians saw themselves and the world. But not many people had a television set, so it was the Olympics that were the talk of the town. However, there's a little-known tale that lies behind the running of the Olympic Games. If it were not for the quick thinking of one Bernard Turpin, it is safe to say that the entire Olympic movement would have been destroyed. Is this overstating the importance of Turpin's actions that fine day? Well, yes, it is. But dramatic tension doesn't write itself, you know. The preparations for the Games had progressed well. Yes, there was a severe sausage roll shortage. And yes, no one knew how to work the starting guns. But apart from that, all was well. Gerald Henderson, the Chief Executive Officer overseeing the running of the Games, had locked up the office on the night preceding the Games, satisfied that all was well. But there was one crucial thing he'd forgotten to remember. November 22 dawned in much the same way as any other day. The sun was just colouring the eastern sky when Bernard Turpin rode his trusty bike from the back blocks of Richmond to the mighty edifice of the Melbourne Cricket Ground. For those listeners unfamiliar with Australia's home of sport... Let me just point out that even in 1956, the MCG was an imposing building. It is big. It's like a huge grass oval surrounded on all sides by lots of seats and stands. Actually, it isn't so much like that as actually that. Anyway, it's big. But not many people know that there is a front door. It's just a plain, unremarkable front door with the added security of a screen door to keep the flies out. But, and here's the crucial bit, Gerald Henderson had failed to put the key under the mat. Bernard Turpin arrived at the front door, felt under the doormat for the front key, and was horrified to find it missing. With only many hours until the arrival of literally thousands of spectators, athletes and dignitaries, Bernard leapt upon his bike and pedalled furiously home where he had a spare key hanging in his laundry. Crisis averted. Bernard sat back and watched the games unfold, securing the knowledge that he had saved the games. And Stephen, for unearthing that extraordinary tale, I think you deserve this one, all right? <laughs> and I think that was actually recorded during the Olympic Games. At, uh, I thought I'd I thought I recognise that. Now, Michael, I, I think we've had a look at one feud already on Apocryphal Australia, but it sounds like this is on another level altogether. 
it is on another level and it's right out there on a branch of its own. And whether this is sort of a true crime study or a study of society, a study of culture, a study of psychology, well, I'll let the listeners decide. This is the hitherto unknown Aquisto Miller feud of 1962 to 1981. Mario Aquisto, 1957 to 1981, and Geoffrey Miller, also 1957 to 1981, grew up in the same street in Bendigo, Victoria. Their lifelong antipathy began when the five-year-old Miller successfully persuaded the five-year-old Aquisto to smell the cheese and unexpectedly punched him in the nose. It was the start of a 20-year rivalry that eventually took the lives of both men. In grade two, it was Aquisto's turn. With subtle craft, he managed to make the young Miller look three times in succession, proving to all the class that he was, as Aquisto pointed out, a dirty chook. In grade three, Miller took the upper hand with a series of inspired lunchtime pranks. In the space of one week, Aquisto's sandwiches were found to contain paper, shoelaces, used chewing gum and aluminium foil. By the end of the week, Aquisto was so nervous that he carried his lunchbox with him all day. Grade four was a period of quietude, with several revenge pranks backfiring and otherwise going astray. Miller and Aquisto shared a rare feeling of camaraderie when their simultaneous water balloon assault on each other missed and drenched Oscar Stott, the school bully. This glasnost, however, was short-lived. Grades five and six saw a rapid-fire volley of practical jokes and pranks. Hoax phone calls asking if the residents had any walls at all, uh, drawing pins on the desk seats, scandalous drawings in the boys' toilets, mouldy bananas left in school bags. The feud was on in earnest, with both parties living in a state of trepidation, rising to a climax around November the 5th, when the merriment that comes with widespread sale of consumer explosives was tempered with the knowledge that one's arch-rival could easily get his hands on penny bungers, Roman candles and high-powered skyrockets. At the end of Grade 6, the Aquisto family moved from Bendigo to Melbourne. For two years, all was quiet. However, Mario Aquisto grew increasingly anxious in that time. Shortly before leaving Bendigo, he'd managed to fool Geoffrey Miller with a hoax phone call that resulted in Miller spending an entire week certain he was about to feature in the local paper as Young Sports Star of the Week, based on a succession of wins at marbles in the school playground. With this success, Aquisto assured that Miller would retaliate. It took three years, but Aquisto was right. In 1971, several encyclopedia salesmen landed in quick succession on the Aquisto doorstep, insisting that the Aquisto household had made appointments, and this signalled the long-range phase of the Aquisto-Miller feud. False deliveries of concrete, visits from local politicians eager to accept donations, and rat exterminators looking for the really big job they'd been promised over the phone bounced between Bendigo and Melbourne for the next few years. The telephone and postal services benefited from the number of messages, but the nerves of the participants began to wear thin. A point needs to be made here, and it underlines the intensely personal nature of this feud. During its entire duration, an unspoken agreement existed never to involve outsiders, deliberately anyway. The vendetta existed solely between the two of them, one-on-one, mano-a-mano, a duel in the time-honoured fashion. The feud had its ups and downs. 
At various times, both Miller and de Quisto dared to dream that it was all over, that the other party had given up, grown up or manned up, and the feud had died only for a prank of fiendish complexity and outstanding embarrassment to arise. One of those times occurred when Geoffrey Miller attended the University of Melbourne in 1975 to study engineering, and he thought he was entering a new phase of his life and was free of the feud. That same day he was struck by a water balloon hurled by Aquisto, who had also enrolled in the same university on the same day solely to be near his nemesis. The feud flared, entering what the scholars call the wet phase. For four years, water balloons flew, becoming larger and more numerous. Aquisto would be drenched with a fire hose, only to fill Miller's car with water and goldfish. Miller would cross the university lawns and plunge into a concealed pit full of muddy water, only for him to attach a pipe to Aquisto's briefcase while he was in a lecture, producing a cascade effect down the steps of the lecture theatre. The time spent on such pursuits naturally slowed down the academic progress of both Aquisto and Miller. In 1981, while they were both trying to patch together a degree of sorts, Miller's girlfriend, Fresney Hospice, persuaded both men to end the feud. Suspicious as they were, they agreed to meet on neutral ground. Fresney Hospice was from Malden in central Victoria, and the two men accepted her invitation to meet there. But before the reconciliation could take place, a band of freak weather crossed the state. Miller's giant water-carrying blimp was downed in the violent storm and his wetsuit-clad body was later found, with his backpack full of dead piranha fish close by. Aquisto was struck by lightning while constructing an elaborate system of sprinkler pipes along the road entering Malden, a virtual cage, something like a kilometre-long car wash with jet sprays capable of pumping thousands of litres a second. Fresney Hospice went on to minor fame as the snack and sandwich girl, remembered for being one of the first to promote and popularise the beloved kitchen appliance, a fame she parlayed into a short-lived quiz show, What's My Snack?, and then a musical, Snackarama, which sadly closed after three performances. She is currently a senior advisor to the World Economic Forum. If only these two had used their powers for good. Stephen, and who have you got for us next? Next up is Lonnie Girk, a well-known uh, radio personality. Lonnie Girk, the mouth from the southeast, was born in 1948 in Chuft, a small town just up the line from Plausible in Queensland. He was educated and then sent to school in Adelaide, where his parents moved to avoid the draft, believing it to be a type of cyclone. There was very little evidence that little Lonnie would become the self-styled king of the airwaves, apart from the fact that a neighbour called him a self-opinionated little twerp. Lonnie managed to land a job working for Freddie Chops Lindner, a popular radio host. Lindner took the young Gurk under his wing and showed him the ropes. But despite this harassment, Lonnie managed to learn a lot from his employer. Tired of being under Linda's wing and of the ropes, Lonnie moved to Melbourne in 1968 and started working at 3OM. He introduced a new style of radio presentation to the Melbourne audience and soon his ratings soared. He became king of the night on his midnight to dawn show. He was soon moved to the breakfast show where he became king of the morning and then he moved to the early evening show, king of the early evening, and was touted to take over the role of drive-time host 
but no one realised that this was a time slot. The manager of 3OM, Ken Liffle, fired the 3OM promotions officer and Lonnie moved from being king of the afternoon to a roving commission. He turned up on the airways at all hours of the day and night and his loyal legion of fans were forced to listen 24 hours a day to catch him. He was now promoted as the Gurk at work. People started to speculate on where the Gurk would turn up next and many a fortune was made and lost on Lonnie's time slot. In 1972, the Broadcasting Commission found that Lonnie was in breach of the Act when it was discovered he was involved in various scams. It was alleged that companies would pay huge sums of money to have Lonnie appear during shows that they sponsored. The mouth from the southeast was found to have profited from illegal payments. He was also charged with numerous fraud and tax charges. It was during this period that Lonnie began to drink heavily. His wife divorced him, citing another woman. Lonnie made so many appearances at various courts during this period that another betting frenzy opened up that was dependent on which court he would appear at next. There were also books running on the likely outcomes of various cases involving Lonnie. The upshot of all this was his premature retirement from public life. In 1979, he gave his last on-air performance. Although many people still think he'll make a comeback, some think he'll reappear on television, with radio a second favourite and online as a roughie. What a character, Stephen. Yeah, and a little bit different from our, our usual apocryphal Australians, I think. I've never heard him. I can't say that I ever caught him while he was on the radio. I was probably far too young. But was he one of those ones with the golden tonsils, the voice that would come to you over the airway and would immediately draw you in to listen more? Oh, well, they all had that quality back in the olden days. They did, didn't they? Now, Michael, you're delving way, way back into the books with this one. Yeah, I was thinking about that, Stephen. We've done a lot of contemporary or sort of semi-contemporary figures. It's, just, it's one of the ones where we really go back just about as far as we go back. And this is John Hobbs, 1748. Get that. 1748 he was born. And 1792 he died. Inexplicably, John Hobbs's name has been left off all official records of the First Fleet and the young colony. However, his influence on the nascent colony is measured in the number of times he is mentioned in diaries, journals and, tellingly, love letters. John Hobbs was a convict transportee originally from Cheapside in London. The details of Hobbs's offence are strangely unknown, but at various times he, is, he described it as involving theft, barratry, impersonation and, on one notable occasion, ridiculing an official statue. It was Hobbes' skill as a carpenter and cabinet maker that were responsible for the important part he played in the early colony. A master woodworker, Hobbes was able to use makeshift tools and roughly milled timber to produce items vital for the marines, administrators and the convicts. Tables, chairs and doors rolled out of his rude workshop, adding much to the comfort level of the colonists. Knee-deep in sawdust and shavings, Hobbes worked long hours supplying essential wooden items as well as keeping up the insatiable demand for spoons, clothes pegs, leg replacements, ventriloquist dolls and witches. The young colony experienced problems but to a woodworker all problems look like wood. When food shortages were dire, Hobbes spent days making wooden vegetables, wooden roast beef and wooden pastries. 
When convicts fled into the bush, Hobbes constructed a wooden pack of hounds. When crops did poorly in the indifferent soil, Hobbes made wooden soil. Needless to say, these efforts met little acclamation. There being few other entertainment opportunities at the time, a public meeting was held where Hobbes was held up to ridicule. A procession of scoffers, jeerers and name-callers taunted Hobbes and his dream of an age of wood. Hobbes took these rebuffs to heart and swore to revenge himself on his disparagers by romancing their women while they weren't looking. By a combination of charm, impressive physical appearance and neatly turned wooden trinkets, he successfully wooed the wives of the administration and marines, while still consorting with the female convicts. Showing nearly inexhaustible energy and a neat line in rolling pins and chopping boards, Hobbes became close to all the women of the colony. Years later, Hobbes's elaborate wooden pegboard was found detailing the residences of these women and the movements of their husband, one of the earliest known examples of a matrix of infidelity, prior to Charles Babbage's differential dating machine. After suffering a serious accident when showing the young wife of a junior marine office the correct grip on a spokeshave, Hobbes's satiric activities ceased and he contented himself in surviving his early critics and constructing elaborate coffins for each of them as they predeceased him. John Hobbes died in 1798 while attempting to perfect a slow combustion stove made entirely of wood. Mm. So his, his slow combustion stove actually caught on? Fire. <laughs> that is the perfect way to say it, Stephen. It was a red-hot success. And that's all for episode 10 of Apocryphal Australia. And that is actually the end of our first season, Stephen. It, it seemed to go so quickly. It has. And this is probably a good time to have a bit of a look back at some of the wonderful things we've got up to. I'd like to nominate some of the top apocryphal Australian findings from this season. And I'm looking back, Stephen, and I remember the Brout Bridge, the Kimbo Rail disaster that you brought to our attention. I thought that was sensational. Yeah, thanks. I, I, there was a fair bit of research to do in that one, so I was, I'm quite pleased that it, that it worked well, that one. The, the, the trouble with looking back is when you do look back, there's such a bewildering array of people and places and events that's really, really hard to choose. I've got two more I'd like to highlight looking back here, and these are a couple that I stumbled across. And the, one of those was the Church of the Aquanauts, and I thought it highlighted that aspect of past Australia, but the spiritual, religious side, and I thought that was notable. And the third one that I'd like to bring back, that people can have go back and have a listen to, was Mesmo the Great, the 40-year-old who played one successful game in the VFL back in the 1930s and used hypnotism to great effect. Now, I think that was just a wonderful story in its own right, and... I'd say let's bring back hypnotism to top-level sport. Stephen, any others you'd like to recall? I remember getting very, very involved in the life of Enzo Morelli, who I think was way back in episode one. Um, he was a fascinating character, and, and I'm a little bit surprised there hasn't been a, uh, a movie or a television series based on his life. In terms of – I also was very, very drawn to a couple of places – Powell Swamp was one of them, um, one of the ones that you researched, Michael, um, in Tasmania. That was an intriguing place. And also 
one other I had a look at corrugated iron hinge just for the the sense of place that is is evoked when 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 reading about it. It was it was it's a fa- fascinating place and somewhat mystical. I thought it, it had a sense that you just don't get many other places anywhere. No, all the best places have something like that. And that is, really and truly, the end of episode 10 of season one of Apocryphal Australia. And that's the end of season one. We've come to a finality there, Stephen. So I think it's time for us to sign off. But before we do, something we've been forgetting to do is to remind everybody to subscribe and like because that makes such a difference, helps people find the podcast and helps us have this warm and comfortable feeling that there really is an audience out there. Yeah, and you don't have to do it in that order. You can like and subscribe. Good point. And there's so many places you can find your podcast. We're just sort of neutral in the way that you listen, but do listen and tell everybody about it. So until next season, this has been Apocryphal Australia, and my name is Michael Pryor. And I'm Stephen Higgins. We'll see you in the future. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to Apocryphal Australia, a podcast dedicated to giving new life to aspects of history in the same way that Dr Frankenstein gave new life to remains that should have stayed where they were. And that's probably a bad analogy, but we don't resile from it. Resile? Us? That's not what we're on about. Frank and fearless explorers of the back blocks and byways of the past. That's what you can count on every episode. So subscribe, set your reminders... Get everyone on side and be ready for your next episode of Apocryphal Australia, coming to a listening device near you. So, until then, be kind to yourself and others, okay?